Have you applied for a job lately? If so, you may have been surprised to find that a resume and cover letter weren't enough to get you in the door. In addition to these traditional methods of screening job applicants, many companies now also use some form of pre-employment testing, including personality assessments, to help determine whether a candidate will be a good fit for the job. In fact, one 2018 survey of human resources professionals found that 79% of them use some kind of testing when making external hiring decisions, and 72% use testing for internal hires. So even if you've been in your job for a while, you may find yourself taking an assessment at work. The same survey found that 79% of respondents used assessments in their company's career development programs. So why do employers use these tests? Are the assessments that they're using reliable and valid? Can a person's personality or other characteristics help predict whether they'll succeed at work? And how are new technologies, including artificial intelligence, changing workplace assessments? What can employers, employees, and job applicants expect to see next on this front? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. Our guest today is Dr. Fred Oswald, a professor of industrial organizational psychology and director of the Organization and Workforce Laboratory at Rice University. Dr. Oswald studies the factors that contribute to workplace success, including how to understand, define, and measure the individual differences that affect employees' performance. He's also interested more broadly in the future of work. His 2019 book, Workforce Readiness and the Future of Work, examines how technology, education, and policy will shape the future of work. He is a past president of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, which is a division of the American Psychological Association. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Oswald. Kim, thank you for having me. This is a real pleasure and uh, look forward to the conversation today. Great, well, let's start with a broad question. Why do employers use pre-employment testing? What do they hope to learn about job applicants that they can't get from a resume, a cover letter, or a job interview? Well. Testing has a long history and a wide range of purposes, um, whether we're talking about employment or we all have taken plenty of tests in school. Uh, there are tests for certification. Uh, for example, airline pilots take tests um, to uh, ultimately guard public safety. And um, employers are hoping to understand who is coming into the workplace. Uh, what are their background characteristics? What are the knowledge, skills, and abilities they have uh, coming in? Or what are their qualities? Uh, I realize we'll, we'll talk about personality today. And so uh, testing is uh, not perfect, but uh, perfect should not be the enemy of the good um, in terms of using tools that can help uh, make good decisions, both for the organization and for the job applicant who uh, obviously seeks to find uh, employment that's fitting for them, uh, not merely get uh, an invitation to join the organization, but actually succeed in it. So a moment ago, I mentioned that employers are using testing to make hiring decisions and companies use them in leadership and career development programs. What kinds of tests are they using? What are the questions that employees and prospective employees are being asked? Yeah, so my own research and experience deals more with uh, personnel selection on the, on the uh, point of initial hire. So um, think about characteristics like personality or job knowledge 
or sometimes uh, logical reasoning skills uh, if they don't have uh, you know prior background indicated in their resume uh, that they have prior technical skills. They there might be a test for uh, some general reasoning. Uh, also, interests and motivation, uh, those obviously differ between people, and people have different profiles of interests and, and types of motivation and goals. And so, tests attempt to get at some of those characteristics of job applicants, uh, hopefully in a reliable and, uh, and valid way, and, and we can talk about that further. Yeah, I did want to talk about that. And what's the difference between a good workplace assessment tool and a bad one? A useful framework um, to go off of is um, think of a, a three-legged stool of reliability, validity, and fairness. Uh, reliability deals with whether what you're measuring is um, stable over over time in the case of job applicants. In other words, you don't want an applicant to be taking a test that is essentially the roll of the dice or is measuring something like mood that is very, uh, that fluctuates. Instead, what you want are characteristics that are likely to appear on the job uh, upon the point of, of hire. And that's where uh, the employee and the organization starts out with the employee to move them forward through training and development. And um, as you mentioned, leadership and career uh career progression as well. Um, and so reliability is a, is a cornerstone of measurement to make sure that a test that claims to measure uh, personality, for instance, actually is doing so. We could put labels on any test and, and make the claim that it's measuring what we say. But how do we know? And we need data to inform that. And so there are data-based approaches to ensure uh, that scores are measuring what they should, um, you know, personality, job knowledge, uh, motivation, etc. Um, and also turning to the second leg of the stool of validity. So do these tests predict outcomes in organizations that we think they should? So um, we know that, for example, conscientiousness is a, a factor of personality known to predict uh, job performance pretty consistently over uh, across jobs over time um, across cultures. Um, and uh, of course, that relationship makes sense to some degree. You need to show up on time for your job. You need to follow the rules. You need to set goals and, and achieve them and, and so on. Uh, but uh, like most things in psychology, the, the devil is in the details. Um, can you support that common sense with well-developed measures, uh, with evidence, and, um, and with good measures behind the data that you're collecting? So not just on the personality side in the case of this example, but how are we measuring performance in the organization? What does it mean to be a successful worker? Um, it's as much uh, philosophical as it is a, a measurement and a statistical issue um, to try and figure out um, what problem we're, we're trying to solve through testing. Um, and then the third leg of the stool is fairness, uh, to make sure that anyone who takes the test um, has the same opportunities to reflect um, who they are or what they know, and um, job irrelevant characteristics are, are suppressed. So, you know, you wouldn't want a test that had 
uh, too high of a vocabulary level if you're not measuring vocabulary. Uh, that would be that would be unfair. That kind of thing, um, or accommodating people who have uh, a vision impairment, for example. If you're if visual acuity is not required for the job, then um, you shouldn't place uh, visual demands on the test for people that need that accommodation. So being sensitive to the people who are taking tests is is just as important as what you do with the scores that come out. Is there any independent body that, that validates these tests? I mean, how would an employer choose one and know that it's a good one? So there are various uh, professional documents that are used by uh, folks who develop tests. So in my world, uh, for example, um, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a member of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, which is Division 14 uh, within APA. We have a document uh, called the Principles for the Validation and Use of Personnel Selection Procedures. Um, it's in its fifth edition. Uh, it's actually free to download through the APA website. And um, it contains some of the principles that I've reflected on in terms of reliability, validity, and fairness, because those are the principles that go into any test, no matter what you're measuring, how you're measuring it. Um, you know, as we move forward into the world of AI and, and new technologies for measurement, these principles still hold uh, to make sure we're measuring job relevant characteristics and um, administering tests in a, in a reliable, fair, valid, secure, ethical, legal manner. And so that's a, that's a major uh, resource in the area of employment testing. But there's also uh, the standards for educational and psychological assessment, which APA is also uh, involved in as a co-editor um, with two other organizations. And similar um, similar principles apply, uh, but it, it's broadened into the domains, uh, as the title suggests, into education, um, whether that's uh, K-12 or uh, you know, placement issues um, into different educational uh, programs, and, um, and, and it, it's more about that context. So um, hopefully those who are listening understand that, you know, we've been thinking about tests for a long time. The site document I mentioned, it's in its fifth edition. It's um, maybe as many decades old or, or close to it. And um, um, so, so serious attention has been paid to help ensure that tests are measuring what they should. And um, any, anyone uh, seeking to purchase a test should be thinking about some of these issues, or at least they would benefit from doing so and not, not merely trusting what, they, what sounds good, uh, but actually seeing whether there's evidence behind uh, the claims of a, a test being reliable, valid, and fair. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you today was because of a kerfuffle that ensued among some psychologists a couple of months ago when HBO Max aired a documentary film called Persona, The Dark Truth Behind Personality Tests. The film focused mostly on the Myers-Briggs personality test, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of and maybe have even taken. What's your view of this test in particular? Is it a valid tool for employers and why is it so popular? I'm hesitating here because I don't want to put any particular uh, company test uh, on the 
on the mat or, or as a target, but we all understand that the Myers-Briggs is a popular test. Um, it, it's used uh, widely in organizations for a variety of purposes. And um, what I'll say about that test really applies more generally to tests that are like it. Um, the early versions of the Myers-Briggs, and I realize the test has been revised, uh, perhaps in ways I'm unaware of, uh, but at least the, the fundamentals of the test um, in its early um, development had to do with profiles. So um, a person would say they are an INTJ, um, and I honestly forget what that stands for, but it's something like introverted and uh, thinking and judgmental, things like that. And um, so the, the profile is used to um, intuitive, sorry, I'm going back to the end there, <laughs> introverted, intuitive, thinking, and judging. Um, but, but the point of that is to say that um, profiles are um, a complex way of describing a person. And um, what you could ask before turning to profiles is whether the single variables that are part of that profile, how much, where do you stand on those characteristics rather than jumping forward to that complex INTJ combination? Because um, science prefers simplicity before you jump into complexity. So, so in other words, um, a, sci a researcher would look at INTJ and break those variables apart and see how those variables, intuitive, introverted, thinking, judging, how those correlate with each other and how they correlate with organizational outcomes. See what those relationships are and then see if a profile or something complicated like that uh, predicts above and beyond the more straightforward relationships. So I think that's where the general arguments lie around the test is that it's not clear whether the uh, profiles add anything above and beyond a traditional test that is more transparent and straightforward in terms of how it's measuring personality traits uh, rather than combining those traits into profiles. I will say that um, the profiles do lead to interesting um, conversations and perhaps yield um, interesting and useful insights. Um, but whether those uh, conversations and insights actually have an impact um, in terms of, uh, you know, if, if you took this test for leader development, um, would, it, would it help you in terms of your uh, job success? Um, I, think, I think the evidence um, is not as strong as it is for uh, more t tests in the more traditional vein that I mentioned, measuring one trait at a time. So many of the validated tests that are being used in the workplace are based on what's called the big five personality traits. Some of our listeners may know what they are, but could you explain what the big five are and the history of that model of personality? Sure. So briefly, and, and this um, reflects on the point of measuring one trait at a time. Uh, the big five measures, uh, as the name implies, five traits. So conscientiousness is one that I had mentioned already. Uh, there's extroversion, agreeableness, openness, 
and neuroticism, which uh, is an unfortunate term because all the traits are intended to measure normal personality. It doesn't mean you're neurotic if you score highly, but it does mean that there's a distribution that people have in terms of their um, anxiety and worry, things like that. Um, again, within the normal range. Uh, same thing for all the other traits. If you're low on conscientiousness, that doesn't mean you're abysmally low, it just means you're low relative to other people. And same for the other traits that are being measured. These are all in the normal range. These are not clinical measures of personality. And so um, how those factors were derived is actually from the dictionary. So some folks uh, early in the history of personality psychology uh, scoured the dictionary for uh, these descriptive terms for people and uh, essentially gave those terms as a test, asking people, how much do these terms apply to you? And there were various rules for which words got included and excluded and so on. Uh, but the point is, they, they gave this test, and then um, they looked at the themes. They used statistics to find these factors, these underlying themes that basically um, cluster the types of responses people were making. And, and there were five clusters, uh, hence... Hence, the big five uh, came out of that. And so uh, psychologists will talk about the lexical hypothesis, and that refers to um, this dictionary, the lexicon, um, uh, dictionary-based approach to uh, deriving personality. There are variations on the big five. Um, for example, um, the Hexaco model is, is um, there are nuances that make it um, more different than the big five than uh, simply adding a sixth factor. But I will say that um, one distinction, one big distinction is a sixth factor called honesty and humility, uh, the HH factor, honesty, humility. And that factor proves to be useful in measuring uh, personality and understanding employees. Um, they're, they're organizations that will give uh, so-called integrity tests uh, that they find uh, from, from test vendors. And those, are, uh, those tests are asking questions about uh, the typical behaviors someone exhibits that are, um, again, these are in the normal range, but um, you know, what are uh, described as your, your workplace behaviors and, and in terms of honesty and integrity. So it sounds like those five or, or six terms that we were talking about, um, that those can be fairly reliably predicted then based on testing? Yeah, that, that people can write, um, the, the folks who are developing personality tests can write items under each of the big five that reflect reliability and uh, validity and can write them in a way that is uh, accessible to people and fair in that, in that sense. Um, they, they do vary in terms of their validity. So conscientiousness is probably the, the, the most uh, valid of those five traits, uh, just focusing within personality testing. Um, but there's continued research on, um, on facets of personality. So facets um, are the kind of sub factors that underlie the big five. Um, they, they, they focus on narrower aspects of personality. So, for example, in um, under the, the factor of conscientiousness, you might think about whether uh, somebody is uh, being more 
kind of uh, achievement striving, like like uh, it's kind of a moving forward motion of setting your goals and following through um, versus uh, a rule following notion, being dutiful or uh, maintaining order or paying attention to detail. That's more of a, a kind of a, a tediousness uh, to it, right? It's, it's more a kind of inward focus as opposed to outward focus. So there are these facets um, that can be measured reliably and that perhaps have uh, different relationships with organizational outcomes than those broader factors. Is it possible for applicants to game these tests? I mean, I, I, I imagine that some of these questions are not so obvious. They're not going to ask you, are you an honest person? But can you can applicants figure out a way to give the employer an answer that would get them in the door for the interview, but it may not even be true? Yeah, there, there's no doubt that um, people can lie on personality tests. And so um, if everybody did so, then we would throw the tests out the window that uh, there's nothing that will help in terms of being reliable or valid. Uh, but it turns out people, um, you know, while, while some people do lie, and as I mentioned, uh, the, the perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good because there's enough variation in responses that is reliable um, that can be used for understanding the, the employee. And again, um, you know, these questions are trying to get at normal personality. It, the framing of the test is to indicate who you are and that, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily uh, serve you well to to lie on the test. There, Some, some tests um, actually attempt uh, forms of lie detection um, to, to see um, if you're just, you know, kind of responding on the fly without uh, thinking carefully through the items. Uh, there are various methods for that. Those aren't perfect either. Um, but um, again, the goal is to try and find a good fit between the uh, job applicant and the employer. And and so, you know, the straightforward answer to your question is people certainly can lie. Uh, but in the context of real world personality testing, um, we don't see that to the extent that um, we would throw away personality tests as part of the employment um, kind of battery of tests we would administer. I think you mentioned integrity test items. You know, an item might be something like, I would turn in a fellow worker I saw stealing money, or um, an employee should be fired if the employer finds out uh, the employee lied on their on their job application. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and you know, those items uh, may have right or wrong answers, uh, but there are degrees of how much you might endorse it. So the, the format might be on, say, a one to five scale rather than true or false. And that provides enough variation to be able to get um, some reliable differences between people and their standing on a, on a personality trait. So one of your research interests is new ways of using technology to measure personality, including big data and artificial intelligence. Can can you talk about that? Um, I think some of our listeners may have read news stories about companies using AI to interpret applicants' facial expressions during job interviews, for example. So what are the potential advantages of these new technologies and what might be potential pitfalls? Right. So we're talking about the Wild West here, um, that these AI technologies for selection are 
developing at the same time that we're thinking about them and uh, safeguarding applicant privacy and and judging whether these tests will provide benefit um, in general and above and beyond traditional tests, perhaps. And um, I think it's important for listeners to appreciate at some level this can, this distinction, several distinctions um, that are part of AI testing. So um, the technology is one part of uh, testing. So how are you gathering the data? Um, so it could be video, uh, although that has been uh, uh, state legislation has uh, uh, rightfully come up to worry, to express uh, concerns about whether um, gathering video images of applicants is really a, a good way of understanding the applicant. Um, and we, we can talk about that further uh, if you like. But um, there's a technology for gathering uh, the job applicants' uh, characteristics. So those could be, could be audio, video. The audio could be processing tone, which again might be problematic, but, but the language, um, you know, trying to extract themes out of what people say and maybe supplement uh, the human interviewer uh, in terms of reminding the interviewer the things that were said and, and the themes that, that emerged. In other words, it could be a, a hybrid approach rather than pure AI, potentially. Other technologies are game-based assessment. So uh, we all have probably heard ads like, hey, get, get online, play this game, and uh, you can see what jobs are right for you. Um, and it sounds engaging and fun and um, data-driven and so on. Uh, but again, the, the principles of uh, whether the test is reliable, valid, and fair applies there. But they are games. They're fast to take. They might be fun. Um, you know, so uh, we're, we're operating in this new world of selection where uh, the, the standard uh, fill-in-the-bubble tests are, are uh, maybe increasingly being uh, left behind. And um, in, in light of these uh, new technologies. So, so how do we make those technologies better is where uh, my work uh, kind of stands is um, I, I think there's some criticisms to be made, but at the same time, um, balancing criticisms with opportunities. Uh, what can we do better? How can we move these technologies forward? Uh, another part of uh, the distinctions that I've mentioned to be made is uh, the algorithms. So they're the technologies and then they're the algorithms that are applied to the data that are collected. So how, how do algorithms um, provide scores uh, for people that are taking these tests? So it's one thing for somebody to take a personality test and you add up their scores, simple addition. Uh, but it's quite another thing to use machine learning, um, you know, these uh, sophisticated algorithms onto uh, somebody's behavior as they play a game and try and figure out what, what themes are in there. So, so that distinction I think is, is really important. And related to this is uh, the type of data where some data may appear directly more psychological. Uh, you know, a game might have you literally answer questions about personality perhaps, and it would look almost like the test, uh, a traditional test. Um, or you might solve a, a cognitive puzzle and it looks exactly like a, a, a puzzle you might get on, on paper uh, in, a, 
in a cognitive test or a knowledge test, right? You could be asked about knowledge within a game. So those are more straightforward and I would say are more um, intentionally measuring the uh, psychological characteristics of job applicants uh, you're interested in. And that's to be contrasted with um, more incidental data. So incidental means, you know, as you mentioned, the, the video capture or, um, you know, learning about maybe maybe there's something in a resume that, that uh, um, an AI engine is scraping from the web, uh, getting people's resumes and extracting themes from them. And they're not intentionally uh, expressing the psychological features that might be inferred, but instead it's incidental. It, it happens to be discovered. And, and those are the promises of AI where we're hoping to discover psychological characteristics from data. But, but again, this, this uh, opportunity also has risk and, and in terms of uh, issues of privacy and ethics, which we all care about, not to mention litigation, which organizations care about. So some of these games that are intended to tell you whether your personality is suited for a particular job, are those really um, valid? And what happens, say, if your employer gives you one of these to play when you're already on the job, and it turns out that you don't have the, the right makeup for the, the job that you have? Maybe it requires creativity, and the game says, you're a brick, man. You're not creative at all. What are you doing in this job? Yeah, well, t tests are one part of a larger picture of uh, decision making, or at least they should be treated as such. And, um, you know, how much weight can you put into a game is a good question, or how much weight can you put into any test? Um, you know, speaking to the job applicant situation, if somebody is new to the world of work, they, they just got out of um, high school, and they're applying for jobs and don't have much work experience. Um, in that case, tests might be more useful because uh, it's supplying information in a systematic way that doesn't show up in any resume. Uh, and it's sort of the idea that there, you know, there, there, there are personality features and knowledge features that suggest the person will be a promising uh, young employee. Um, by contrast, if if somebody has um, an extensive resume with, um, you know, expertise being reflected, they're, they're a neurosurgeon, for example, um, perhaps a, a, a game attempting to measure job knowledge is not, is not necessary. Um, and then there are, there are cases where um, the test isn't perfect, but it's trying to measure these characteristics that are you know, honestly hard to get at um, through tests or through any other way, like creativity. And so um, maybe those tests are used for developmental purposes and not for uh, selection necessarily, not for saying you, you will, uh, you know, have a problem in this job, but rather to say, here's what this game uh, is, is indicating. And do you, you know, as a, as a developmental conversation, how do you see that informing what you should be doing next to work on your creativity? And so to the extent those scores have some reliability and validity, then that's a worthwhile conversation because the, the test is actually um, diagnosing uh, something about creativity. Creativity is a hard thing to measure, by the way. Um, it, 
sometimes depends on your prior knowledge. So you, you need to, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily um, open-ended, in other words. Uh, some types of creativity are uh, where you just let your mind go and um, think about whatever pops into mind. But in other cases, it's where, um, you know, luck favors the well-prepared in a sense that you, you have uh, a lot of knowledge in your head and, and then you're asked to create and you have all these uh, knowledge frameworks that assist in your creativity. So, so I will say it from the get-go that that's a, that's a tough construct to measure um, with tests or, or otherwise. That, that's a topic that we're going to be exploring in a future podcast. So listeners, stay tuned because we will come back and talk to some experts about creativity, which is really fascinating. So um, what would you say to a job applicant who might be uncomfortable with the idea of an algorithm instead of a person evaluating their job application? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think you know, AI is as much a, a cultural feature as it is a technology. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out um, as researchers and as people who are subjected to these technologies, how is that going to change the world of, of work? Um, you know, will it be better for employees? Will it be better for organizations? How will it work when AI is... Um, more even more infused into organizations and and perhaps becomes a a given um in in how selection happens that'll be a different um world than what we're experiencing today where we we don't see we we see the entry point we see ai entering uh the area of selection and and continuing to grow and as this is happening we do see um you know, it, those going through those experiences as applicants are clearly talking and probably tweeting and getting a sense of how it works. You know, state legislation keeps arising in response to these technologies to try and um, ensure the tests are uh, measuring reliable characteristics of, of applicants, um, job-relevant characteristics that are important at the point of selection, not just relevant, for the job, but relevant at the point of selection. I think that's important to, to emphasize and not invasive and, uh, you know, legal and ethical and those things. But the, the devil is in the details there. Um, reading these state um, bills or, or, you know, regulations, the language is um, open-ended because uh, the technology is uh, still being developed and, and we need to figure out uh, what are appropriate uses and what are inappropriate uses. You know, video capture seems to be most problematic to try and infer employee characteristics from their feet, you know, how they look or how they, um, how, how they're, what the emotions on their face and, and so on. That, that seems very problematic and, and is. Um, it's not like, it's not like the algorithm did detect highly relevant job features and, and we should be using it. Um, there, there doesn't seem to be evidence for that. So the evidence, um, lack of evidence is also a, a concern in that, in that area. But, um, you know, I think we will wait and see in terms of how people will, it, it will evolve, I guess would be my answer. Just like uh, self-driving cars, right, have barely happened yet. Um, there, there are some very isolated instances of self-driving cars being in the world. 
But once they become more commonplace, we'll have a entirely different phenomenon on our hands. I think there's also the applicant perceptions of the hiring process that, that will evolve as much as the decisions that are made from AI will evolve. So in other words, as you get more used to AI as a, a tool for selection, maybe people will see that um, humans supplementing selection becomes uh, the, the the add-on, the, the part that's valued, um, which would, you know, kind of turn the tables on on the whole thing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how humans merge with AI as AI permeates um, selection. Uh, an applicant might feel uh, that the organization is not paying much attention to them by farming it out to an AI to do selection on a, on a broad scale. That would be a negative. Uh, but a positive could be that AI is um, treating applicants fairly. I mean, imagine AI tools that are making every attempt to be fair and accurate in ways that humans try to be. Um, that would be a positive uh, aspect of AI in the future as we continue to develop uh, tools that uh, are effective. So it won't do things like humans do, like prejudge people based on their names, which they're unusual or foreign sounding. Correct. Or maybe you make a judgment because, oh, this person went to my alma mater. I'm going to give her an interview. Right. Those sorts of things. Yeah, those sorts of things um, that, right, we're supposed to be selecting on job relevant characteristics and not irrelevancies like your name or your background. And another, another aspect I think to consider is um, sometimes people think um, – well, tests are, are not any better because they're deterministic. And um, that's not true either. Tests are, tests are a way of letting employers know what an applicant um, looks like. What are, the, what are their strengths and areas in need of development? And um, that then gets considered with um, other uh, pieces of information. And again, the, the tenets of fairness apply to all aspects of of the application. Um, so it's not, it's not like a test score determines your fate in these systems as much as we might put weight on these scores as we have sometimes hear about in, in the news, uh, whether it's personality, the, the persona uh, series that you mentioned, or um, standardized testing in college admissions. No admissions office is relying solely on test scores, I, I don't imagine. Right. Less and less. Yeah. Some of them aren't relying on them at all anymore. Yeah, exactly. And that's another conversation to have, I guess. So the last question is kind of a big one. What are the major research questions that you think still need to be answered? And what, what are you studying now? Wow, that is a big question. <laughs> um, currently, I've been researching um, what products are out there in the world of AI and personnel selection what are vendors providing and what, what evidence is there for their effectiveness. And um, we are, um, you know, not pretending to engage in fully comprehensive survey of what's out there because it keeps changing even, even by the day. But at least getting a sense of what is being offered, what types of things are being offered, and what evidence is out there to support the technologies that are uh, being offered and, and sold. Uh, Sometimes at, at high dollar, um, and and what do what do organizations get in return for their 
investment? What do employers um, hope to get? And, and how does that align with what they might get from these technologies? So our research is looking there. Um, also, I've been interested in uh, school-to-work transitions. So um, the question there is whether we can use uh, some forms of detailed data collection or um, perhaps some machine learning to uh, look at the transitions that people make from their education into the workplace. And it might be a, a four-year college, it might be a community college, it may or may not be a degree, it may be a certification or people are just, people are taking courses relevant to their interests and, and then getting jobs. So what do those transitions look like and how do algorithms capture those regularities so we can understand them? But then also, how can we intervene on, on that to make sure that people are um, seeking uh, meaningful employment and um, steady employment in the world of work in a way that fits their uh, capabilities and also their desires to grow in their, in their field? Uh, easier said than done. Um, that's a that's a tall order, but we're we're using data to inform those efforts. But then also um, connecting with educators and policymakers to see what they do with those findings. So it's one thing to reflect on the way things have been through the data, but it's it's another thing then to take that information and say, well, where are we going? What are the new uh, directions uh, that we should be headed in that the data alone don't tell us? So that's, that's been pretty interesting uh, to me and, and hopefully impactful uh, to a, a range of, of folks who uh, perhaps like me uh, didn't know what they were going to do when they, uh, when they grew up and they, and they kind of fumble their way through the world. <laughs> um, you know, the, I've always been a, a, an advocate of even giving a little information uh, can go a long way to open people's eyes to the possibilities. Well, this has been very interesting. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Oswald. I've enjoyed speaking with you today. Yeah, thank you very much, Kim. This has been really great. And uh, more importantly, I hope listeners find it interesting and uh, we keep our gears turning on these issues. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology at speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. That's speakingofpsychology, all one word, at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.